0: Welcome to Spotlight. I'm Toby Mitchell, Senior Editor for Private Equity at PEI. Today, the Institutional Limited Partners Association has released a free-to-use model limited partnership agreement, a dummy legal contract, in a bid to make it easier and cheaper to negotiate terms and set up a private equity fund. Ahead of the launch, I caught up with Chris Hayes, Senior Policy Counsel for ILPA, to get some of the details and to ask why this document is needed now. So why is there a need for the model LPA at this point in time?
1: Sure. Well, uh, you know, the idea of standardizing legal documents came out of discussions that we held on a regular basis. Uh, About once a year, we get together with GPs and LPs, both in London and in New York. And so this came out of some discussions that we had had with senior folks at both sides of the aisle. And there was a feeling that There's an interest in pursuing standardized some of these legal documents to lower legal costs, speed fundraising, and lower the increasing prevalence of side letters. And so that really caused us to embark upon this kind of LPA simplification project. And we started with our model subscription agreement, and now we've moved to, which I think is a much more substantive document, the model LPA. So the idea of putting out a model LPA now, I think is we, we've seen a lot of growth in legal costs surrounding f- forming these funds, you know, organizational expenses continue to rise. And I think it, there really isn't a standard that's out there in the marketplace. So if you look right now, you can't Google up a model limited partnership agreement, they're all proprietary, and they're all really controlled by a number of large law firms that sell the document. And so by having something that's out there that people can refer to and that everybody's familiar with the terms with rather than folks who just see a lot of documents, I think it's just a value in itself. Um, so by having that out there in the marketplace, it can be picked up. People can look at it. They can pick provisions out of it that maybe will work for them. And obviously our members as LPs can be comfortable that something ILPA has put out aligns with our principles and, you know, principles of fairness and, and alignment and, and things that LPs care about. So we think it's it's a real value to have out there in the marketplace. There hasn't been anything that's been done before. I think if you look at the hedge fund industry with ISDA agreements or the venture capital industry with, with their model documents, we've seen successful standard document efforts. And so there's no reason that can't occur in the private equity industry. I think we're, we're trying to be practical when we put this out about the value that it can deliver, but uh, you know, overall we think it's helpful to put out terms so people can actually just pull up an LPA and use it either as a starting point for their fund or use it in their existing negotiations with established managers. And so you started with a whole of fund carry
0: version uh, what was the th- thinking behind that and and how long do you think it'll be before the the deal by deal version comes out
1: yeah so uh, as i'm sure you're aware the the ilpa principles actually encourage a, a whole fund waterfall version however you know we we really had to balance with this document trying to make it as market friendly as possible while still aligning with the ilpa principles so you know we we tried to to thread that needle. And we do want to put out a deal by deal waterfall just because of its prevalence in the marketplace. But just from a a structuring perspective with this initial document, we thought it was important to put out something. It's a little more straightforward to to craft a a whole of fun waterfall. So there was some discussion during the drafting of this document within our lawyer group about maybe creating kind of a hybrid model where we would try and provide optionality between the two waterfalls, but that just made the document too complex. So um, we decided to go forward with the HoloFund waterfall. And then, you know, we wanted to put this out to the marketplace and see what sort of reaction we get and then move forward to considering whether we a deal-by-deal waterfall makes sense. Okay. But do you, do you think there's a danger that given how prevalent
0: deal-by-deal carry is that this Model or template might be seen as like a bit of an irrelevance to a lot of people because I say, look, this is fine if we're doing a full fund, but but we're not. So here's what we're presenting you with LPs.
1: No, I mean, I'm not concerned about that. I think, you know, there's still a certain prevalence of a whole fund waterfall out there in the market. And we obviously think that's the best model just because it reduces, you know, clawback risk and, and some of those other issues. But, you know, we we do want to be responsive to that marketplace. And so our, our goal in the future is to potentially release a deal by deal waterfall down the line.
0: On the subject of fiduciary duty, how does this this document kind of uh, mesh with, with the other work that ILP has been doing on, on fiduciary duty?
1: Sure. So, As you may have been following, you know, and this kind of moves a little bit into what we've been doing on the policy front, our members have become really concerned, 35 of them signed a, a letter to the SEC this spring about the increased prevalence of contracting away fiduciary duty in the limited partnership agreement, and we think really undermines the trust in the relationship. Uh, in the partnership between GPS and LPS we think it's core that there be a duty of loyalty and a duty of care and the trends are are going in the wrong direction in, in our opinion and that's why we're encouraging at least in the us the SEC to to engage and make sure that the advisors act standard that you can't contract to a lower standard than that standard so the model tries to address this we have a pretty strong fiduciary duty provision in there. So it recognizes that there's a fiduciary duty and it actually includes a standard of care, what the standard of care is, which is not typically drafted in there. So we wanted to put that in there because we think it's really important that if a lot of the discussions around the Advisors Act fiduciary duty were really around disclosure, right? So it's a disclosure-based statute. And so we think it's important that the standard of care that you're going to apply to the fund and the investors in it is clear. Uh, at what level of standard of care do you owe? Do you owe a negligence standard, a gross negligence standard, etc. And so we think it's important to state that outright. Often, you know, I think people aren't fully aware, particularly people who aren't looking at these documents a lot, that fiduciary duty is eroded throughout the document. It's not just written down that you know, we don't have a fiduciary duty. Um, so it's, it's proliferation of sole discretion language, etc. cetera. So, you know, we, we did include also provisions that prevents the GP from pre-clearing conflicts of interest. So one of the issues that we have seen in the fiduciary duty context is around the duty of loyalty and the, the prevalence of conflicts of interest. And so, you know, we think it's important that when there are conflicts that they are brought to the LPAC when they arise and then they can be consented to rather than trying to pre-clear all those potential conflicts, uh, ones that might not be fully ripe, right, might not be fully vetted and out there for the LPs to fully understand and consent to at the front end of when you invest into the funds. So, you know, our, our document tries to prevent that kind of activity from occurring.
0: What does it mean when conflicts are pre-clear? Does it literally mean there's a list of potential conflicts of interest that are noted and Pre cleared, or is it more
1: vague than that? Exactly, yeah. So I think while ILPA has been supportive of kind of the SEC oversight of the industry here in the US, what it has produced is an excess of disclosure. Um, And at some point, disclosure that is too voluminous becomes less meaningful. So when you are what we would call pre clearing conflicts, you're basically you know, kind of listing a variety of things that may be conflicts in the future, but aren't maybe fully clear that they are yet. And so when a conflict is actually fully there, then you bring it to the LPAC to presume you don't try and go ahead of time about something that might not currently exist yet, but may exist in the future. So what we don't want to happen is basically, you know, LPs have signed this document with say, yes, a laundry list of conflicts that may occur in the future. And then later on, five years later, the the GP comes to them and says, hey, here, we have this conflict, but you've already consented to it five years ago. Rather than saying, hey, we have this conflict and here are the details of it. And here's why, you know, we think we can handle continuing to operate the fund in an appropriate manner while still having this potential conflict of interest. And then you're aware of it so you can make the decision whether um, you're going to clear that conflict, then we think that's a better process for alignment between the GP and the LP. So ultimately, it's a partnership. So you should have trust that you know, your conflicts aren't harming the interests of those invested in the fund.
0: Um, I, I also noticed that there's an obligation in there for the GP to share the identities of all the LPs with each other on a, on a quarterly basis. Is that something that's not commonly done at the moment? And do you think there'll be much pushback if that's the case?
1: Yeah, so this is also something we've been working on quite a bit and our members have been concerned about. So I I think it's, from my understanding, under UK law, for example, there's a register, so it's actually a publicly available register, um, where all the ownership interests in the partnership are clear. But we've heard that there's, right, obviously LPs have certain governance rights in the document, and if LPs don't know who their fellow LPs in the fund are, then they may not be able to exercise those governance rights. And so we've been hearing, obviously all of this stuff is anecdotal, right, because we don't see those documents due to the the confidential nature of them, but increasingly our members are telling us that they are not receiving a list of their fellow LPs in the fund, the investor register, et cetera. And so we think that list is really important so that they can talk to their fellow partners in the fund. You know, they're all supposed to be partners in the partnership together. And we've even heard it go to the extreme of they don't send an email for the annual meeting and and certain it's all BCC'd so that the investors don't know who the other investors in the fund are, but of course they all get to the annual meeting and then they see their peers there. So I, you know, I think it's we think it's really important given that LPs have certain rights uh, under the document, whether those are you know removal rights or, or other types of rights that they may have that they are able to contact and know who their fellow LPs are in case they do need to talk about issues that are coming. Say there's a key person event, the LP should be able to reach out to their fellow LPs and address whether the investment period needs to be suspended or how to move forward with something like that. That's just an example. But that's why we think it's really important for LPs to know who they are. I think we are cognizant that some LPs want to remain confidential. We certainly have some members that uh, want to remain confidential and there should be some way for them to opt out. But I think the default should be disclosure unless the the LP has specifically requested on their behalf to opt out from being included on the list. And First of all, that also doesn't mean that we think it necessarily should be disclosed out to the public at large. I think, you know, this is really about internal fund governance. It's not about having all the LPs in a particular fund just fully disclosed to the world, unless that's already the the law in in that particular jurisdiction. Is there there any language in the model LPA about
0: secondary transactions? So sort of anticipating a need for liquidity at towards the end of the the fund's life, or is that left to be negotiated at the time?
1: Yeah, I mean, that isn't something we specifically dealt with here. It's not something that we we covered in regards, so that's something that you'd have to address. So obviously this document, we're trying to balance the complexity of how long these documents can get to something that is relatively simple with kind of the core components. So that's how we try to approach this. Great, and
0: then so I guess my final question on it is, How do you know what success looks like in this? What are your kind of hopes for how it gets used?
1: I think, you know, we're realistic about the document. So first of all, I think, you know, obviously the primary value here is having something out in the marketplace that people can refer to as a standard that exists in the marketplace, which right now, given the proprietary nature is not out there. But I think in terms of success, we think this can be used in a variety of ways. So first of all, we think it's useful for managers that want to raise money from investors, right? So as all managers want to do, but GPs who are thinking, okay, what is a document that I can start with and move quickly that, you know, LPs will be comfortable with. And so obviously having something from ILPA as your starting point, I think can really help you attract LPs and let them know that you're thinking about them and about the partnership that you're going to build over, you know, the next 15 years with this fund. So GPs who are thinking about that, I think is really Really positive. Um, that may be GPs who are emerging managers, right? So, so managers just starting out, um, and we obviously want to encourage the growth of new managers. is is always positive from our perspective. From the LP perspective, we also think it could be used potentially in emerging markets for folks who are interested in attracting capital as well. So, those are where we think it will be picked up potentially and be used. So, we're we're going to be talking to folks of who run emerging manager programs that are members. We're gonna be talking to DFIs. We're gonna be talking to other groups who often are able to help direct GPs um, who are interested in seeking their capital to use a particular document. We're also going to be talking to the fund-to-fund platforms that sometimes operate those programs. In addition to that, we think obviously many established managers are already using their document and we don't expect GP counsel with established managers. You know, We could name the, the few firms who are, are really heavily involved in that um, just because you know the, their business model is selling a model document. So any kind of document I think that we could put out, they would probably find some issues with it in order to encourage adoption of their own document by the GP. But we do encourage GPs to think about this as a as a resource for them. And we think it can be used, even if you're not using the full document, we think both established GPs and LPs can use it. Both as a reference, so, like I said, having this public standard out there is is something that people will be familiar with the language from it, and they could plug it into their document if there's some negotiation over whatever they're proposing initially between g p s and l p s or g p s might be able to adopt portions of it that they're comfortable with, so they can say that certain provisions in this come from the open model l p and I think that would add a lot of value to to both parties to the negotiation so You know, we think it could be used in all of those types of elements. We also think it could be used as a benchmarking tool because it's really a practical application of our Principles 3.0. It doesn't always perfectly align with the Principles 3.0, so we we had to (laughs) deviate slightly from it in some areas, but for the most part, it, it does align with that. And so LPs who are looking at the other documents in their portfolio can also look at what provisions they like in the the ILPA model and actually have something to point to as an example of the language that could be inserted during their negotiation. So we think that that could be beneficial. Lastly, we'll be able to use this in our ILPA Institute from an educational perspective. So, we think there's a variety of ways that the document can be really useful. And, you know, we encourage people to take a look at it, have an open mind about it. We're certainly open to answering questions. And we had a variety of attorneys in the working group, uh, about 20 attorneys helping us draft this document. They're the technical experts uh, that we relied upon and they're all heavily involved in fund formation negotiations, both for GPs and for LPs. We also have some in-house folks as well. And so we encourage people to take a look at it, see what provisions in there that they think they can adopt and, you know, go from there. Cause I think, you know, our members are increasingly thinking about you know, how can we move towards a way where we're reducing some of these costs on the front end to form the fund? Um, and there doesn't seem to be much price sensitivity, what we've been seeing in the market to rising org costs because right now our members pay a lot of those costs, I think they're getting frustrated at sometimes that there's significant cost to basically have the law firms negotiate the terms against them. So we think this is a resource that could be out there and these guys can look at to help move things towards a more standardized uh, area. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: That was Chris Hayes of ILPA. If you want to hear more episodes of PEI's Spotlight Podcast, you can check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, and PEI's various titles online.